following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. So some of you have asked about information concerning us going, and this is a website we created called Launch the Move, and you can go to launchthemove.com, and that's uh, my wife Bridget and our, our seven youngest who are going with us, and they're all back over there. Can y'all wave? Can you guys wave? Yeah. Um, so we all came out here together because, um, you know, we're homeless right now. So <laughs> might as well come to San Diego for the conference. Um, but also this is kind of part of our farewell tour as well. Um, just saying goodbye to folks, friends and family and things like that. So um, tonight uh, I, I really wrestled with how to handle this particular topic uh, because there's so much that could be said and so many ways to deal with this. So what I decided to do um, is a little bit, you can take it out, um, maybe a little bit out of the ordinary. I wanted to sort of kill a number of birds with a single stone. Um, Maybe a couple of years ago, in our church, we were at a place where our eldership had gone from, we were about to go to seven, and we ended up with two. And uh, our church is, you know, nine and a half years old, and we planted a number of churches, and we raise up elders, and we send people out to plant churches, and and um, so, we, you know, 300, 400 people or so, and then we're just whacking people off, sending them away to go plant. and. And so we were at a place where our eldership was just unbelievable that we were going to be able to have seven elders. Um, and, and all of our elders are pastor teachers and it was just wonderful. I mean, the bench was going to be so deep. And now, now we end up with two. And, um, and it, it you know, wasn't that, you know, bad things necessarily would happen. Only one of those guys um, had, had uh, left because of some reasons that weren't all that pleasant. Um, but there's two of us. And then one after another after another, marriages started being attacked. And so I was dealing with one uh, couple that was having some issues that had come to involve the law. And um, they're just very involved stuff. And so I'm, I'm buried under that. And then there were two instances of adultery. Um, one very unusual and it's never, you know, usual, but this was very unusual. And so there's, there's these issues. Then there was another couple which finally came forward and, you know, the wife basically wrote a letter to the elders and said, I'm leaving the church. Not our family, but just me, I'm leaving the church. Obviously, this was a cry for help. Well, why would you leave leaving the church? Well, here's stuff that's going on in our marriage. It's been going on for a while, and you guys haven't done anything about it. <laughs> Would have been nice to know. And so there's this couple, and there's, and there's, there's two of us now, right? And so th- this thing was overwhelming. So well, what do we do? Well, we didn't know what to do, and we contacted some, 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 some folks there who were some you know, good biblical counseling people to, to help with some things. But I just had this idea. I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do, do a class in my home for couples in crisis they're going to come to this class. And I have to say why they're in the class. But basically what we're going to do is we're going to walk through Ephesians together. And so, you know, some of the couples were like, well, no, we got problems. We got real problems. Yeah, I know you got it. Trust me, I know you got real problems. I realize that. But I can't, I, I, you know, I'm, I, don't, I, I, I never got paid from our church. My itinerant ministry is what I do for a living. I do that so that... Again, I w- we wanted to be nimble in our church planting, and you know, for a number of other reasons, it's just not the way we ever did it. So I'm traveling six or seven days a month. I have more than a couple of kids. Um, <laughs> we got this family, which has some stuff, and there's the courts, you know, that we're involved with, and so that's pressing. And we got this over here, and now all of this stuff that just happened. So it ended up being like five or six different couples that, you know. More than half of them were at the place where they were like, done. So, I don't know what else to do. So everybody's coming over to my house. <laughs> and we're going to sit down and we're going to deal with, if, yeah, but you're not going to deal with our specific issues. Just give me a couple of weeks. 
and let's walk through Ephesians together. And I guarantee you, we will deal with your specific issues. I guarantee you we will. So we started walking through the book of Ephesians together with a specific view towards marriages in crisis and applying these things to marriages in crisis. Trying to help these people understand that everything that they were wrestling with as marriages in crisis was everything that Paul was dealing with here in the book of Ephesians. And everybody, you know, you want to get to the second half and we want to get to chapter five and talk about marriage and this, that, and the other. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to start at chapter one because you have to understand the first half of the book in order to understand the second half of the book. And when you get the first half of the book, trust me, we get to the second half, you're going to understand why we decided to do this. So in dealing with prayer, the last chapter is the chapter, you know, right after we get the household codes. Um, and the household codes show up a number of places in the New Testament. Uh, we have the household codes in Colossians. We have the household codes in Ephesians. We have the household codes in Titus. We have the household codes in Second Peter. Every time you have the household codes, um, they're addressed to husbands and wives, children, and slaves. That, that was the household. That's what made up the household. So everyone in the household is addressed there. Well, in Ephesians, it's no different. You have husbands and wives there at the end of chapter 5. And then you have children in the beginning of chapter 6. And then you have slaves uh, right after in, in verses uh, 5 through 9 of chapter 6. And then right after dealing with the household codes and all of this other stuff, we have the most extensive teaching on spiritual warfare in the New Testament. And so we deal with this issue. Now here's all these things that we've dealt with. Now let me help you understand this issue of spiritual warfare and why you need to be on your faces. Why this must be a matter of prayer. Why you not only need to change the way you think and to change the way you behave toward one another, but this has to be a matter of prayer. You, you have to do this on your knees. And so what I want to do is just sort of go through um, kind of what I dealt with with them and address at the same time this issue of why prayer is of such critical importance in biblical counseling. What does warfare have to do with marriage? And much of what we deal with when we're counseling people has to do with issues concerning marriage and family. What does warfare have to do with marriage and family? Well, marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. It is an affront to Satan. It is an insult to Satan. And as a result of that, it becomes an epicenter of spiritual warfare. It becomes an epicenter of spiritual warfare, not only because it's this picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, but right after chapter 5, you get 6, 1 through 4. What's produced in that relationship? Well, what's produced in that relationship is children. And since the announcement of the war between the serpent and the seed in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the serpent has been about destroying the seed of the woman. First of all, so that the promised seed, Jesus Christ, wouldn't come, but he did. And then second of all, he continues to be at war with the seed of the woman because he doesn't know who the elect are. And so every child that is born is potentially a fellow heir with Jesus Christ in the making. So there is a war between the serpent and marriage, which is a picture and a reminder of the relationship between Christ and the church, and a war between the serpent and the seed of the woman, which is the potential expansion of this kingdom of which we're citizens. Therefore, marriage and family become the epicenter of spiritual warfare. Well, when you've got a Christian marriage and a Christian family... That you just put a uniform on. He'll fight you any way you come. Amen? But you put a uniform on and it's on. Okay? Now you are officially identifying here with Christ. And so prayer becomes an essential part of 
this mission. Listen to this, John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We are at war, though. Two mistakes that we make in this whole idea of spiritual warfare, which, again, is critical when we understand prayer and counseling working together. One, we overestimate spiritual warfare so that the devil is responsible for it. Everything, not everything, everything. That's beyond everything. Devil's responsible for everything, okay? We have problems with sound. Well, that's the devil. Really? And then this is my favorite. Uh-oh, uh-oh, something big's getting ready to happen because we're having all these issues. Satan, no, wait a minute. You just ascribed omniscience to the devil. Shame on you. You had not know anything. Amen. God's omniscient. He's not. Amen. God's omniscient. He's not. So everything becomes spiritual warfare. The other side of that is we underestimate spiritual warfare. And if you are a person who underestimates spiritual warfare, you are not going to be a person of prayer. If you don't understand that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle and that our very existence as followers of Jesus Christ It's declaration of spiritual warfare. If you don't think like that, then you're not going to pray regularly and you're not going to pray desperately. You're not. Because if it's not spiritual warfare, you don't really need prayer. You know, one of the things we do from time to time, not always, is we'll go, you know, someplace and we eat and our server will come and we'll say, hey, we're about to pray for our food. Is there any way that we can pray for you? Just a little wait, a little conversation starter. And sometimes people go, oh, thank you so much. Yes, please, this happened today. Please pray for this. Love those moments. But more often than not, about eight times out of ten, their response is, no, everything's okay. Why is that our response? Because you only need prayer when the wheels fall off. If everything's okay, you don't need to pray. If you're not in the midst of warfare, you don't need to pray. You don't need to pray. So underestimating spiritual warfare is detrimental in terms of our very prayer lives. But one of the great blessings of being involved with counseling and discipling people through issues like the ones that we deal with is that nobody has to remind you that the devil is real. And that we are at war. Amen? When these things were happening to these families, I mean, we would, you know, our, our elder meetings, I mean, we would just, you know, look at each other sometimes and just, just shake our heads. What is, what is this? What is, what, and we're, we're talking about significant families in the church. Families that other people would look to in the church. Well, the book of Ephesians is divided into two halves. Chapters 1 through 3, and then chapters 4 through 6. We know that we are at the division because chapter 3 ends with a doxology, right? Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, right? There's a doxology and an amen. Done. You get a doxology and an amen, you're done, right? And then chapter 4 begins with a therefore clause, okay? So chapter 3 ends doxology and amen. Chapter 4 begins with a therefore clause. So we know that we've just turned a corner. The first half, orthodoxy, our calling, indicatives, right believing. In the second half, we go from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. We go from our calling to our conduct, from indicatives to imperatives, and from right believing to right behaving. In the first half, we get a proper understanding of what Christ accomplished on our behalf to the Father's glory through the cross. Let me say that again. First half of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, we get a proper understanding of what Christ accomplished on our behalf to the Father's glory through the cross. 
And the second half, we get a proper understanding of living in light of and as a direct result of Christ's active and passive obedience. Living in light of and as a direct result of Christ's active and passive obedience. This is huge. It's huge. Because ultimately, every last one of us is a closet legalist. Amen. Every last one of us. And oftentimes, we're we're just more honest about it than that. We're just legalists. We want somebody to give us rules that we can follow. We love the 10-step sermon, the five steps to a happy life, the four steps to reducing stress, the eight steps to raising happy. Give 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 me those. Give me those. Because the legalist in me says, did you hear that? He gave us some steps. We get to go home and do this stuff. And if it works out, we get to pat ourselves on the back because we did it. We did it. We yearn for this, which is why we want to run to the second half of Ephesians. But you got to get the first half. Because then in the second half, you understand that this is about proper living in light of and as a direct result of Christ's active and passive obedience. What is that? Well, in his active obedience, Christ kept the whole law on our behalf. This is his active obedience. He was actually righteous. He is the God-man. And as a man, our federal head, he keeps the law on our behalf. Therefore, he can impute righteousness to us. So our righteousness is not our own. It is an alien righteousness, as Luther said. It's an alien righteousness, and it's imputed to us. Well, in his passive obedience, he lays down his life and dies a death that he does not owe. He's sinless. He doesn't owe a death. And it's only because of his sinlessness, and this is why the virgin birth is so important, he wasn't born under the federal headship of Adam. The rest of us are under the federal headship of Adam. And because we're under the federal headship of Adam, we're under that curse, and we're enemies of God. He wasn't under the federal headship of Adam, so he had no sin of his own that he was born with. He was actively obedient, so he didn't commit any sin. He could impute righteousness to us. And then he could lay down his life as a vicarious, substitutionary, atoning death on our behalf so that our sinfulness could then be imputed to him and he could die for it and take care of it completely. And it's this double imputation that makes us righteous. We've got to understand the active and passive obedience of Christ. Because when I understand that, I get to the second half of Ephesians, and now I know that I am what this text says that I am in the first half, and I can do what is demanded of me in the second half only because of, and as a direct result of, Christ's active and passive obedience. So I'm constantly looking back and reminding myself of his active and his passive obedience because it is both my motivation and my empowerment to achieve and accomplish that which is set before me in the second half. This is why we couldn't take that group and just run to Ephesians 5 and say, you stop doing this, start doing that. You stop doing this, start doing that. Work harder, work harder, work harder. No, 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 no. We got to get to the first half of this first. This is about the difference in the way that we view all scripture. The difference between what the gospel produces and what the gospel requires. The difference between indicatives and imperatives and the centrality of Christ and his work. What the gospel requires. All the gospel requires is repentance and faith. That's it. That's all the gospel requires. Repentance and faith. Got to pause a little bit so people can squirm. (laughs) I know you get righteousness, holiness, obedience. That's what the gospel produces. We must not confuse what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. See, if the gospel requires obedience, then that means we can achieve obedience apart from Christ's active and passive obedience. That's the message of the gospel, right? So if the gospel is requiring me to do it, then why did Jesus do it? Why do he have to if I'm able to? See, this cuts out all of that. I'm going to get my life together so I can get back to church. Enough already. If you could get your life together, you wouldn't need the church. Amen. 
The gospel produces obedience. If we confuse what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces, we end up pursuing works righteousness and negating the very gospel to which we are attempting to conform. Indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are what God has done and produced in us and for us through Christ's work on the cross. Imperatives, what God requires and enables us to do as a direct result of that. Okay? First half of Ephesians, you have indicatives. You don't have imperatives in the first half of Ephesians. The first half of Ephesians is all about who we are because of what Christ has done. It makes it clear there in that first chapter, in that first real paragraph, okay? Then there are some overarching indicatives in the first half of the letter. I won't take the time to deal with that. Um, Let's deal with this warfare passage. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. So now our group has already come through all of the first half. We get into the second half. We get into chapter four. Chapter four is juicy because it's all those interpersonal things. I loved when we were dealing with chapter four because all those people who are like, we have specific problems and you want to come to this class with other people. You're not going to deal with our specific problems. We're in chapter four. They started going. Yeah, I guess I see. I see what you was, I see what you were saying. You think y'all are new. You think you invented some marital sin. Help you. <laughs> this section in verses 10 through 20 is divided into to two halves. The first is the field. The second is the fight. Okay? The, the, the first, you know, we get strategy. and the second, we get tactics. In the field, we see our resources, our adversary, and our goal. In the fight, we see our uniform, our weapons, our partners, and our victory. Let, let, let's look at this. First, our resources. <clears throat> and here's what you find. This is another thing that you find in interpreting the book of Ephesians. And this is really important for, for counseling. Really, especially when you're counseling culture, couples, when you're counseling families. Um, and and I, I'm not assuming anything. Okay? Everybody in here could already know all of this. I'm not assuming anything. But... When you were counseling couples and they're having issues, it's easy to just run there to Ephesians chapter 5. You know, ma'am, is this you, sir? Is this you? You know, no, no, it's not. It's not. You know, okay, repent, do better, da, 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 you know. But we've got to continue to run back to that first half. And, and even when we're dealing with interpersonal issues there in chapter 4, right? When we're, when we're dealing with how, how, how we speak to one another and, you know, all these sorts of things. And, you know, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. God in Christ also forgave you. We're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation and all of that. We, every last bit of it ties back to the first half, right? Um, the, the example I like to use is, uh, you know, when he says there at the end, uh, forget it, I think it's verse 29, about not grieving the Holy Spirit, Right? You're not grieve the Holy Spirit. There's so many interpretations of what that means. You know, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Um, well, the interesting thing about that is if you understand that the second half um, is to be understood um, and can only be understood in light of what we find in the first half of the letter, um, then you understand that earlier we're told that we are being built into a body by the Spirit. Right? In chapter 4, don't use corrosive words. These corrosive words tear down, but only such as is good for building up. The the word for corrosive is like acidic. Don't use acidic words that will tear down a structure, but use words that will build up a structure. Well, and then he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Why would it grieve the Holy Spirit for you to use those kind of words? He's the one who's building us into one body in Christ. Therefore, if your words are tearing down the body of Christ, you are grieving the one who is the bodybuilder. Can't understand the second half without the first half. Okay? So even when we get to chapter 5, you know, it's, you can't understand the second half without the first half. When we get to spiritual warfare, there's nothing different. So, look at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What's interesting, be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. 
The strength is not yours and the armor is not yours. It's alien. It's his. You are not being asked here to do in and of yourself that which you cannot do in and of yourself. What we're being called upon to do here is to be clothed in Christ. This is very important. So our resources are not even our own resources. You're not even being called upon here to have your own resources, to use your own resources. What about our adversary? This is why. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now we read that, and if you read that out of context, and all you're doing is reading chapter 6, again, this just makes you scared, Right? There's books about this, you know, all of these different kind of demonic forces and, you know, demonic bosses and demonic, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, because that, because that's what this is about, right? That's what Paul wants to communicate here, right? Um, unless you're familiar with the first half. So the spiritual forces of evil are where? 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 In the heavenly places, right? So that means we're supposed to be scared, right? Because I'm not in the heavenly places and they're in the heavenly places, right? But remember, my resources are his strength and his armor. But are the heavenly places discussed earlier in Ephesians? Oh, yeah. Chapter 1, verse 3. Look there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in thee. Where are our enemies? Where have we been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him. Where? We're blessed in the heavenly places. We're seated in Christ in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. But wait, there's more. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plain what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities where? I don't think he intends for us to be scared. That verse is not there for us to have some litany of list of demon forces to be afraid of. We've already been told in the first half, we're blessed in the heavenly places. We're seated in the heavenly places so God can show off his grace. He's manifesting his wisdom in the church in the heavenly places. That's where our adversary is. And that's where Christ rules and reigns. In other words, he in trouble. (laughs) What about our goal? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I love all these people talk about, you know, we'll go whip the devil. (laughs) No, you not. (laughs) He's got a whipping coming, (laughs) not from you. So that's, that's cute, though, that you want to you do that, but you haven't been asked to do that. When it's all said and done, that you stand firm, clothed in an alien armor. Chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What's the opposite of being tossed and carried about? Stand. Stand in Christ. This is the mission. What about our uniform? Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Have we seen that before? Chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Rather speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into the him who is the head. Chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. Again, the second one. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Have we seen that before? Yes. Chapter 4. Verses 22 to 24, put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's an alien righteousness. And the last one, and your shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. We've seen this a number of times. From the open greeting, opening greeting in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace was a common New Testament greeting. And it was basically a shortening of the gospel. This is the grace of God that brings us peace with God. And of course, in chapter 2, we see that he made peace. And he might reconcile us in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who who were near. Our uniform is provided for us by Christ himself. By Christ himself. What about our weapons? Well, verses 16 to 18b. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you may extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer. These are our weapons. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle and we finally see our weaponry. Second Corinthians 10, three through six, for though we walk in the flesh, We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Spiritual warfare is something that is beyond our capability. And this is what drives us to prayer. What about our partners? This is where the prayer part of it gets even more significant. Verse 18c. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Here's what's interesting about this. And I didn't really get this until I started working through this with people again and again and again, dealing with various issues. We're talking about spiritual warfare. When we talk about spiritual warfare, what's the normal way that we think about this? We think about spiritual warfare as me against the devil. Right? That's what we think about. Or you may have a picture, you may be like me. I was scarred for life as a young person. I don't remember what year the uh, the, the, uh, exorcist came out. I don't remember. Anybody remember the year the exorcist came out? It was 70-something, right? 74, okay? I was five years old. (laughs) Messed me up, (laughs) y'all. To this day, to this day, 
Like if that movie's coming on and it's on television or something and they're getting ready to show, you know, and the priest is walking in the dark and he's getting ready to come up. Mm, I ain't watching that. Mm-mm. That, that, that and Jaws, right? <laughs> Living in Southern California and watching Jaws when I was getting old, I just, yeah. So that's what we think about, right? We think about the strong super Christian going to do battle with the devil. That's our picture of spiritual warfare. Or we think about the word of faith movement, you know, and, 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 and your words and learning how to use your words and control your words to shape your reality. Because that's what spiritual warfare is all about. Um, if one person fights another person, that's not called war. That's called a fight. Just saying. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Why? Because spiritual warfare is corporate and never individual. This roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. One of my greatest memories in Africa, and this is is just part of the depravity of, of human beings. We, we went on a game drive, and everybody, when you go on a safari and you go on a game drive, I don't care who you are, if you're honest, way down deep in that place that we don't talk about in Sunday school, you go on the game drive, and you, you want to see lions. Really, you don't want to see lions. You want to see a kill. You want to see a lion take something down, preferably something big. You just want to see it. You just want to see it. Even if you don't admit it, way down deep, you want to see it. And when you see the lions, you start looking around like, okay, is there something he can get? Because I want to see him get something. I really do. I really do. And so we, we're on a game drive, and we come upon these lionesses guarding a kill, a fresh kill. They've taken down a Cape buffalo. And we're t- we get like from within me to the front row of these lionesses in the vehicle. And he's like, you know, just keep everything in the vehicle. Because uh, they see the vehicle, they're fine. We're really big and intimidating, but you know, something dangling, who knows, you know. <laughs> Everybody, you know, you know when you can feel your own heart beating and racing. And then one of the lines, stomach distended, you know. Well, the animal kingdom is so different than the human kingdom because we, you know, they just kill when they're hungry. This lioness's stomach was distended. And over there was a warthog who didn't see her because of our vehicle. She began to use our vehicle. Stomach distended. She's so full. They're laying down guarding the kill because they've eaten all they can eat. But they don't want the hyenas to come get it for when they're ready to eat some more or for when they're young coming. They're not hungry. But she sees this warthog who doesn't see her because of our vehicle. And she starts stalking the warthog. Not because she's hungry, just because he's there. And none of us were going, okay, let's drive away now. We were all going, get him, get him. And the reason that she starts stalking this particular warthog was not only because it didn't see her, but because it was isolated and alone. The enemy wants you to think that spiritual warfare is all about you as a super Christian doing battle with the devil. He will eat your lunch. You are not unique. You are not special. You are not powerful. If you're one in a billion There's eight people in the world exactly like you. (laughs) Some of y'all have figured that one out on the way home. (laughs) Oh, okay. Spiritual warfare is corporate. Please let me say this to those of you who are counseling people. 
one of the last things you ever want to do is get into a situation where your counseling ministry becomes you against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Where you're out there isolated and alone doing battle and you're not part of a body of believers engaging in this spiritual battle together and have people praying for you and holding up your arms in the midst of this process. You will wear yourself out. You will wear yourself out. And here's the great irony. When you get worn out, you won't just lay down and die. That would be bad enough. If the result of doing this spiritual battle was you just got so tired that you went and laid down and become useless. No. The great irony is when you get worn out like this, you usually go out and do some of the same stuff that you're counseling people to stop doing. We can't do this alone. We mustn't do this alone. It's warfare. We have partners in warfare. What's our victory? He writes, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I, change, that I, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Please don't miss this. Paul's talking about spiritual warfare. Okay, he, he gives us, you know, all of these issues here um, dealing with spiritual warfare. And, and, and then after he gives us all of this theological treatise on spiritual warfare, he ends it up with, and pray for me. And what you would think is, based on our understanding of spiritual warfare, and pray for me as I go do battle with the devil. No, pray for me so that I can be clear and bold in proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because the ultimate act of spiritual warfare is gospel proclamation. Why? Listen to this. You were, chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were on the other side of the battlefield. We were the enemies of God. It's not that you become a Christian and then you become a part of spiritual warfare. You've always been a part of the spiritual warfare. You were just on the wrong side of it. What is the ultimate act of warfare? You may think that the ultimate act of warfare is, you know, our side kills one of yours. No, no. You know a more bold and brazened act of warfare? I go get one of yours and make him one of mine. That's what the gospel does. So in spiritual warfare, we're not killing demons. They're not killable. I, I tried, you know, I tried. We're not killing demons. So, so, so what does happen? Here's what happens. The gospel is proclaimed and Christ's kingdom expands as people are brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the ultimate act of spiritual warfare. Not the casting out of a demon. That's not the ultimate act of spiritual warfare. Paul doesn't say, and pray for me that I might have strength as I go cast out demons. That's not how he culminates his teaching on spiritual warfare. He culminates it, pray for me so that I can be clear and bold in the proclamation of the gospel. By the way, when we're doing biblical counseling, what are we doing? We are proclaiming the gospel. 
so that people who are not part of his kingdom can become part of his kingdom and those who are not living like they're part of the kingdom to which they belong can have the gospel reinvigorated in their life and in their thinking so that they walk upright and circumspectly and circumspectly as children of God. It's spiritual warfare. That's spiritual warfare. And for those who think, well, no, 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 spiritual warfare is all about demon possession and demon oppression and all this other sort of stuff. Is that, is that really the most powerful thing that we can do? Matthew 12, 43 to 45, it's already been alluded to. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waters, uh, waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Enough already with casting out demons being the epitome of spiritual warfare. You cast out a demon, seven more come back. But you preach the gospel and a person is filled and sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. He's no longer part of the enemy's camp. And once redeemed, the enemy will never have him again. Oh, the enemy will mess with him. May even appear to have some victories of him, but if they belong to God, amen, they will persevere. This is the ultimate act of spiritual warfare. And I, I would take another step and say, to echo what our brother said to us earlier today, my, my fellow church planting pastor, that ultimately church planting, that, that, that you want to talk about special forces, planting churches in places where there's not a gospel witness, that's the tip of the spear. That's the tip of the spear. Isn't it ironic that there's a picture in our minds of what the spiritual warfare is all about that actually moves us away from what spiritual warfare really is? It moves us away from a corporate mentality to an individual one. And it moves us away from the proclamation of the gospel as our ultimate ends to spiritual power. Power encounters. Running the devil out of town as our ultimate ends. One makes much of Christ. The other makes much of me. wonder where that second idea comes from. Our resources are sufficient. Our adversary is spiritual and powerful. Don't underestimate him. Our goal is simple, to stand. Our uniform is supplied. Our weapons are supernatural. Our partners are substantial. And our victory is guaranteed. That's spiritual warfare. And this is why prayer is essential and inseparable from biblical counseling. Let's pray. Oh God, our gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, we bow before you as a humble and grateful people, humbled by your mercy and your grace and your kindness toward us, and grateful for what you have set your Son to accomplish on our behalf to your glory. Grateful for his active and passive obedience by which and through which we stand before you as righteous because of that double imputation. Grateful to you 
Because you've seated us with him in the heavenly places and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Grateful because in the midst of this battle where our adversary would seek to work us, woe. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Grant by your grace that we might never overestimate or underestimate the reality of spiritual warfare. And that it might drive us to our knees. And that as we get our hands dirty in the lives of individuals who are often casualties in this very war, may it make us even more mindful of our desperate need to pray, of our desperate need to seek you, and of our desperate need to support one another in prayer. Father, as we leave this place, would you gently remind us of those whom we've met here this weekend who are engaging in this same battle? Would you do that so that we might remember them in prayer? Father, I lift up the one who is here, who is weary, who is tired, who is worn out, who is holding on for dear life by their fingernails, about ready to let go because they have gone it alone. Grant by your grace that they might release the burden that they were never intended to carry on their own, that they might flee to Christ and to the body of Christ to the many partners, to the substantial partners that you've intended for us to gird together with in this battle. May not a single man or woman under the sound of my voice ever think about going this alone again. Grant by your grace that we might understand the significance and the magnitude of this battle, of this war, and our need to engage in it as a body. Father, I thank you that you have not given us a spirit of fear, nor have you given us texts like these in order to make us afraid of demons hiding behind corners, but to remind us that our victory is guaranteed because it is Christ's victory. Oh, may we be found in him. We ask these things. We hope these things. We believe these things. In the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Yeah. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.